0: Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning and we give you honor and praise and glory. We thank you so much that you've drawn us here this morning. Thank you that we can come in out of the cold, but we thank you that we can come in out of the rain as well, that you've blessed us with rain these latter days. We thank you for that. Lord, we thank you that we can come to your word this morning, that it's a marvelous mystery that you are opening to us. Lord, we pray over Pastor Mike that you would give him uh, deep insight into your word and that he could um, just unpack that for us here this morning. We pray that your spirit would be uh, at work amongst us here. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. 1 Corinthians 11, verses 17 through 34. But in the following instruction I do not commend you. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, he took bread, and when he gave thanks, he broke it. will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat the bread and drink the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. This is why many of you are weak and ill, and some of you have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that We may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. About the other things, I will give direction when I come. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Good morning church. Good to see you. It is good to be back with you uh, this week. I missed you last week. I enjoy being here and worshiping our our Lord uh, together. Last week I was with our high school students uh, for winter retreat. We were up near uh, Donner Lake. This is a picture of us uh, having breakfast on Saturday morning. We had uh, Chef Cleveland and Chef Ryan making us uh, pancakes, which were really good. Uh, by the way, we had uh, a wonderful time up there. We're able to go out. Um, this is just above uh, Donner Lake, and we're able to go out and get some uh, skiing in and enjoy God's creation. And one of the uh, highlights for me was just seeing our, our high school students, some of whom who knew each other, uh, but some of whom who don't really know each other that well, come together and and build friendships and and relationships. And it was. Uh, it was a sweet sweet time and and I'm praying that that's those kinds of times are going to be increasing not just amongst our high school students but in all of our small groups that we're going to be uh, getting closer and, and coming to love one another and, and enjoy one another uh, to spur one another on toward love and good deeds and, and to be on mission and, and making disciples. So it was a great weekend last week uh, who, who was there? Raise your hand Don Shirley Brammer and we just had we had a really good time but it is good to be back with you this week. And for those of you that are visiting or haven't been here over the last months, we are on a journey through the book of 1 Corinthians. It is our normal practice to to go through books of the Bible. And so I want to do a little bit of review here at the beginning before we get into what I'm calling problem number six, drunk and despising the body. Uh, So let's go back a little review before we get to problem number six, going back early in in the book of First Corinthians, problem number one was these were these divisions within the church. There were different itinerant preachers that came through, uh, Paul and Apollos and Cephas and these others. And within the Corinthian body, there were people that had uh, a special unhealthy affection for these different church leaders. And the Spirit was something like, you know, if you're really, really close to the Lord, you're going to have the discernment to know to follow this leader, or you're going to follow this leader. And my pastor is better than your pastor was kind of the issue there. This was problem number one. And then problem number two was accommodation in the church. See, the reality is all of us are sinners, and all of us sin. But God calls us as his children to live repentantly. And so we're all going to sin. That's part of why we do confession, to to confess our sins before the Lord and to work out the gospel and to, to practice repentance, to do repentance. But that wasn't happening in some realms and some very prominent people in the Corinthian church. And so the church was just allowing totally open sin and the... A life of, of pursuing Jesus Christ, and these things cannot be. This happened with uh, an incestuous relationship. That was problem number two. Problem number three lawsuits among believers. Uh, this was a situation where what was revealed is that the functional God of some of the Corinthians was not the Lord Jesus, but it was money. And I'm going to sue that guy over there that I'm doing business with in the other pew in order to get this money. And Paul says this very challenging word to the church at Corinth. And he says, in this, the gospel is being hindered. Christ's name is being defamed. And in fact, you who are being sued, even if you are being sued wrongly, you should allow that to go forward rather than hinder the gospel. Lawsuits among believers were problem number three. Problem number four. Paul spent a lot of time on this. I'm calling it tri-tip sacrifice to Zeus, meat sacrifice to idols. There were all of these temples and and, uh, various gods that were worshipped. And part of what Paul said, he said a lot about this, but part of what he said is, yeah, those gods are not real, but there is demonic activity going on. You shouldn't partake in these festivals and these celebrations and eat this meat. Sacrifice to idols. That was problem number four. Problem number five, last week's sermon, disregard for male and female roles uh, in the life of Christians. These are some difficult things that we have been talking about. Can I get an amen on that? Have these been difficult topics? And then finally, today, we're going to get into in a few moments the Lord's Supper. And what is going on here at Corinth is some are gathering. Uh, And they are getting drunk. And they are despising other members of the church family in Corinth who aren't even getting any food or any part of the Lord's Supper. And this is just a terrible, terrible thing that's going on, and Paul's going to address that. We're going to look at this in in just a moment. I want to say something about all of this, all of these problems. And it's a good thing. It, It makes me smile. I mean, we look at all these problems, and you might think that God would just say, uh, all right, <laughs> enough with this. You, you, you are out of here. Uh, I am done with you. Uh, anathematize these people. This, this is some really messed up stuff. But our God is a gracious God. He is a merciful God. And although you and I do not have the same exact issues that are, that are going on here in Corinth, if we are honest, you and I are a messed up people. Can I get an amen on that? We we also are messed up. And the good news of the gospel is that Jesus forgives us. And he wants to see us change. He wants us to to, to become joyful, God-loving people. And so through the Holy Spirit, Paul is giving instruction to help them grow and to help them change. And this is what he's doing today as the Word of God is preached uh, through uh, through whoever the preacher is, whoever the spokesperson is. you know. Recently, I've uh, been spending some time. Last Monday, I was up at a um, ski resort. My son's a ski racer. And you've got to go through these gates, right? And if you miss a gate, uh, you are disqualified. Uh, you are out. And I am really encouraged as I read through the book of 1 Corinthians and as God has been speaking to me, that the Lord Jesus did not say to the Corinthians, you're, you're disqualified, you're out, you've had too many problems, you've had too much going on. No, his grace is there. Redemptive grace to, to help us, to move us forward. And this is, uh, this is the message he has for us today. This is a difficult problem uh, again. But let's uh, before we get there, one other thing, before we get to the text, one piece of background before we get to the Lord's Supper. What Christian churches today celebrate in a single ceremony was originally connected with a real meal, during which participants broke bread, broke the bread at the beginning of the meal, and drank the cup of blessing at the end of the meal. So, you know, we just have this small amount, and no matter what tradition of Christianity you're a part of today, you generally have this small amount of of juice or wine and a small amount of bread. But they had a full-on meal, and we have to understand that as we come to the problem of uh, problem number six here in today's text. So let's get into the Word now and begin here. 1 Corinthians 11 and verse 17. If you don't have a Bible with you, I encourage you to grab one and and pull it out from the chairs in front of you. You'll be able to follow along much better with me today. So 1 Corinthians 11 and verse 17. In the following directives, I have no praise for you. No praise for you, congregation at Corinth. For your meetings do more harm than good. 18. In the first place, I hear that when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you, and to some extent, I believe it. So we notice here in verse 18 that this is not one of the situations that the church has written to Paul about. There's been many correspondence that has gone back and forth from Corinth to Paul, back to Corinth. This isn't one of those. Somebody else has let Paul know, some other believer, about what is going on. And he's heard about these divisions. Not the divisions back in problem number one, but a different kind of division. Look at verse 19. No doubt there have to be differences among you to show Which of you have God's approval? This is a difficult verse here, but what I think is going on in verse 19 is Paul has heard from this source who has told him what's going on in these celebrations of the Lord's Supper. Paul has also heard that they have an excuse for this. That the well-to-do who are enjoying this fine food and fine beverage at the Lord's Supper, at the exclusion of the poor, that they are saying some of us are actually approved and adopted into God's family. And so that's why there's a difference in what's going on in the celebration of the Lord's Supper. So that is most likely what's going on in verse 19. Look at verse 20. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper you eat. For as you eat, each of you goes ahead without waiting for anybody else. One remains hungry... And another gets drunk. So the, the, the full weight of this is coming out here in verse 20. Uh, Paul is saying under the inspiration of the Spirit that what you are doing is not even the Lord's Supper. It is so important that the Lord's Supper is a community meal, that we are unified, that we love one another when we partake for the Lord's Supper, that when you are disregarding the poor, And they aren't even participating. They're not part of your social circle. They don't have what you have. This isn't even the Lord's Supper, what you are doing. Paul says in verse 20 and 21. One remains hungry, another gets drunk. Verse 22, don't you have homes to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you for this? Certainly not. This has got to change, Paul is saying. And so in this first section, 17 through 22, we see that unloving attitudes or actions toward those in the congregation are not only totally incompatible with celebrating the Lord's Supper, but they actually invalidate it. This is a a widespread thing that's going on in the congregation, and so this isn't even the Lord's Supper any longer. So a takeaway, uh, I've never seen anything like this, and we uh, we do uh, bring meals together and have potlucks, but we don't combine that, as it were, with the Lord's Supper. So I've never seen anything in any church actually like this, which is a good thing. Just imagine well-to-do people are bringing really nice food and drink and excluding those that are poor from this meal in the context of celebrating the gospel and the Lord's Supper. So this is what's going on in 17 through 22. And then we get to this very familiar passage and paragraph uh, the next one, verses 23 through 26. And you've been around the church for any length of time. You are very familiar with this, but let me let me read it. Verse 23. Paul is, is, is giving them here the liturgy or the pattern, if you will, that he received from the Lord in how the Lord's Supper is to go. Verse 23. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, he took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. You proclaim the gospel until he comes. That last phrase, this is a temporary ordinance or a temporary sacrament a temporary celebration until he comes back this is what the church has been given to do in our meetings to celebrate and proclaim the gospel by this special sacred meal this sacrament ordinance eucharist communion whatever we want to call it and it is a beautiful thing that god has given us and something that we need to do rightly now, the rest of this section, you guys tracking with me? No, this isn't the most exciting stuff here, okay? Um, but this is important stuff. It is the Word of God and it is his direction for us. But my heart is heavy right now as I move into this next section of the sermon. Because our understanding, and when I say our, I mean Christians across the centuries over the last 2,000 years. Our understanding of the Lord's Supper has been something that has brought tremendous division to God's church. Tremendous division. And this makes me very sad. And this makes this next section I'm about to preach a difficult section to preach on because I know Jesus' heart. I know his prayer. You know, we have what we call the Lord's Prayer is really the disciple's prayer. This is how he wants us to pray, our Father who art in heaven. We see Jesus' heart in John chapter 17. We see Jesus actually praying to the Father in John 17. And to summarize his prayer there is that we would be one, that we would be unified, that Christians would be unified as the Father and the Son are unified. And it's a very sad reality that we're not worldwide very unified. Is that a sad reality? You hear what I'm saying? It is just a sad reality. But in order for us to be unified, we have to be unified on truth. And so that's why I'm going to talk about what I'm about to talk about, not because I want to bash people that have other views, but because if we are going to have unity, we have to be united around the scriptures and around the word of God. So, so here we go. Jesus says, this is my body. And these are some of the most debated words throughout the history of the church. Godly people trying to understand what the Lord's Supper is and what Jesus means here. So summarizing verses 23 through 26, this is how I'm summarizing it. In the Lord's Supper, the church proclaims the gospel through the bread and the cup, symbols, it's an important word, symbols of the propitious body and blood of Jesus. Now I used a fancy word here, propitious. And propitious means wrath-absorbing, wrath-absorbing, Sin substitute, body and blood of Jesus. The gospel, the bread and the cup are symbols of Jesus dying in our place, absorbing the wrath of God that you and I deserve for our sins against him. Jesus took that upon himself and by faith we are saved. And the Lord's Supper is proclaiming this every time we celebrate. it. But again, people have disagreed a lot. Even to the point of death. Uh, uh, about how to understand this this Lord's Supper. So I'm going to give you here three views of the Lord's Supper. And I want to do this without, in a non-bashing sort of way, but I want to do this in a very honest sort of way. And the first view of the Lord's Supper is what's called transubstantiation. Another big word here. And instead of me defining it and explaining it, let me tell you what the Roman Catholic Church Says in their catechism about what they believe. This is their perspective on this. They say, by the consecration, the transubstantiation of the bread and wine into the body and blood of Christ is brought about. What they mean here is that when the priest consecrates, prays over, says a liturgy over this wine and this bread, that they become literally the body and blood of Christ. Under the consecrated species of bread and wine, Christ himself, living and glorious, is present in a true, real, and substantial manner. His body and his blood with his soul and his divinity are present. So when the scripture says, this is my body... This is one way to understand what is being said here. Obviously, I think it is an incorrect way to understand what is being said here. And I'm going to talk about that more in a few moments. But I want us to be an informed people is part of why I'm talking about this, as well as a heart for unity which I don't think we get to unity apart from truth, but it's also important that we watch our doctrine and our life closely, the scripture says. So this is why I'm going through this today. So transubstantiation, a second view of the Lord's Supper is referred to as consubstantiation. And both of these views, uh, although they are very different in some ways, they are similar in that they both see a real presence, a real literal presence of Jesus' body and blood miraculously being present in the Lord's Supper. So first, number one, is the Roman Catholic perspective, and number two is the Lutheran perspective. And during the sacrament, the fundamental substance of the body and blood of Christ are present alongside the substance of the bread and wine, which remain present. They coexist, as it were. That this bread and wine, or this bread and juice... Coexist in with and under the actual literal presence of Jesus' body and blood. Martin Luther was uh, the one who uh, is uh, kind of the, the one who is most associated with this second view called consubstantiation, real presence. He and many others believe in the omnipresence of Jesus' human body. Okay? I'm losing some of you here. Randall's with me. He's in the front row, though. He's in the front row. Um, So one of the issues is, we believe that Jesus' body is 100% human. It's glorified now, but it is 100% human. So how can that body be in all sorts of different places? And Luther and transubstantiationists say it can. And so Luther published a book... His book was, this was the title of his book, that these words of Christ, this is my body, etc., still stand firm against the fanatics. That was the book that he published, basically defending that Christ is really present in the Lord's Supper. And this was his logic. Christ's body is at the right hand of God. The right hand of God, however, is everywhere. Therefore, Christ's body surely is present also in the bread and wine at the table So I again want to submit to you that this is not a sound argument, and it is mostly not a sound argument, because of other things that Scripture teach. So we have transubstantiation. We're almost uh, to the end of this section. We have consubstantiation, and we're going to get to uh, our position in just a moment. But before we get there, I want us to look at, at one of the most difficult passages of Scripture to understand and to interpret. I think it's difficult no matter what view you take, but it's difficult in our view. And this is the, the, t- the ultimate text, if you will. And let me just share with you, this isn't just, uh, so some of you may be thinking this is, uh, this is really academic, this is, this is like history class sort of thing. But part of the reason that I, I'm sharing this, I, I had a conversation some time ago with a godly man who was a Roman Catholic. And we went to the passage we're about to look at on the screen here, John chapter 6. This was a Roman Catholic man who loves Jesus, who knows his Bible very well. It was a very interesting conversation because he was basically saying to me, one of the differences between you guys and us is that we take the Bible literally, and you don't in John chapter 6. And that's not an argument that you kind of expect from a Roman Catholic, but we had this conversation, a very fruitful one, and so this is part of, my experience, and why I'm going now to this difficult passage in John chapter 6. So let's take a look at this uh, together. So then the Jews began to argue sharply among themselves, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? Jesus said to them, I tell you the truth, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life and I will raise him up at the last day. And so my godly Roman Catholic friend that I'm talking with some time ago, he says to me, "You see, Mike? Here it is. This is literal. You have to eat his flesh. You have to drink his blood. It is this mysterious miracle that takes place. And only then, and only then will you be raised up and have eternal life. This is this is essential. To having eternal life. So John 6 continues. For my flesh is real food and my blood is real drink. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me and I in him. Just as the living Father sent me and I live because of the Father, so the one who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. John 6 continuing. Your forefathers ate manna and died but he who feeds on this bread will live forever. He said this while teaching in the synagogue at Capernaum. For me, this is an important sentence here, okay? Jesus, this is early in his ministry, in John chapter 6, he has yet to die, he has yet to be raised, he has yet to bring about the Lord's Supper in any way. So I want to suggest that the Lord's Supper... From our reading, we can't but help think about that when we read this. But in this context, they're not even thinking about the Lord's Supper. So he's in the synagogue, early in his ministry, teaching in Capernaum, a place where they are following the laws of Moses and waiting for the Messiah and looking at this guy, is he the Messiah? And so on hearing this, many of his disciples said, this is a hard teaching. Who can accept it? Now that resonates with me. Those of you that are tracking with me, does that resonate with you? This is a hard teaching. So imagine a guy standing in the synagogue saying, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you can't live. That's kind of weird. No matter what your culture, no matter what your background, what are you talking about? And I want to suggest That one of the things that is going on is, is he speaking literally or is he speaking figuratively? And you know where I'm going. So continuing, and this will be the end of John 6. Aware that his disciples were grumbling about this. Jesus said to them, does this offend you? Yeah, it does. What are you talking about? What if you see the Son of Man ascend to where he was before? What if you see the Son of Man go back? to the right hand of the father bodily his body's gone and then i put this in yellow here because this is key for me in understanding this passage the spirit gives life the flesh counts for nothing the words i have spoken to you are spirit and they are life the emphasis here is on the spirit bringing life the emphasis here is that the flesh and, 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 and what you are actually doing counts for nothing. It is the spirit that's going to give you life. And these words that I've spoken to you are spirit and they are life. In other words, I am not saying that you literally have to eat my flesh and drink my blood. I think that is a metaphor for loving God, for knowing God, for believing God. I should say Jesus there, for knowing Jesus, for loving Jesus, for believing in Jesus, and even for internalizing Jesus spiritually and figuratively. One commentator says this. This is his paraphrase of that verse I put in yellow. Don't get hung up on my references to my flesh being eaten and my blood being drunk. I am speaking figuratively. I'm referring to a spiritual action not to a physical one. So I think John 6, is, is as we read it, we of course think of the Lord's Supper, but if we look at it in its historical context and grammatical context, we are not talking about the Lord's Supper. All right. Everybody make it through that? Are you with me? Say amen if you're with me. Amen. All right. We're, th- th- that, this, is, this is a hard section uh, for me, and, and, and it's hard because it just grieves me, the disunity across our traditions of Roman Catholicism, of Orthodoxy, of Protestantism, and the Coptic Church. I just, uh, we, we, we don't see these divisions. We don't see any of these groups, if you will, in the New Testament. And I'm sad that we have them, but we do. So finally, our understanding, a Protestant understanding, a, a evangelical free church understanding of what the Lord's Supper is, is that Jesus is with us spiritually as we partake of the Lord's Supper, not bodily, not physically, um, not, not in a literal presence sort of way. So let nothing, one commentator writes this, let nothing inappropriate to human nature be ascribed to his body, the body of Jesus, physical body of Jesus, as happens when it is said either to be infinite his body's infinite, or it's in a thousand or a million places every Sunday as the Lord's Supper is celebrated, or even every day as the Lord's Supper is celebrated. No, we believe that Jesus' body is fully a body like yours and like mine, and it is at the right hand of the Father. Okay, let's move on to the next section here. Back to Corinth, back to what is going on, verses 27 through 30. Therefore, Whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. A man or a woman or a child ought to examine himself before he eats of the bread and drinks of the cup. So just coming back into the ancient context here of of ancient Corinth, they were eating and drinking in an unworthy manner. And they are guilty, and their unworthy manner was, was disregarding their neighbor, their brother and sister in Christ, and they're not participating in this. 28, or 29, for anyone who eats and drinks without recognizing the body, some of your translations here say just simply without recognizing the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. And some of your translations, including the NIV and the King James Version that I'm reading, from, says, recognizing the body of the Lord. So we have a a manuscript issue here. I think the better reading is not the way that NIV has it or the King James has it, but the way ESV and NASB have it. So what this, the way I understand verse 29 is it should read this way. For anyone who eats and drinks without recognizing the body, meaning the church, meaning the congregation at Corinth, without recognizing the unity and the importance of loving one another, eats and drinks judgment on himself. So verses 27 uh, through 30, we see here that serious self-examination is a prerequisite to partaking of the Lord's Supper. So let me try and give you some practical help here, especially for parents. One of the big questions that we have as as we rear and bring up children in the ways of the Lord, believing children, is when should they partake of the Lord's Supper? And The short answer to that is the Bible doesn't tell us when they should partake of the Lord's Supper. But they must be believers in the Lord Jesus. And I want to suggest they must also be able to do serious self-examination before they partake. Can they examine their own lives, for example, and see that because I'm excluding or being unloving to these brothers and sisters in Christ, I may not partake until I've repented and gone to that brother or sister and made something right or whatever the sin is this is just what's going on here so if our children are intellectually or spiritually not able to do serious self-examination then they're not yet ready to partake of the Lord's Supper does that make sense are you with me yeah you can't say no right you can say no afterward but I, I hope you're with me um, on this. So this is 27 through 30. And then one last thing I want to bring out of this passage, and this is a beautiful thing. Look at verse 31 with me. Now, the NIV reads, But if we judged ourselves, we would not come under judgment. And the HCSB brings the sense of this out, so I put it on the screen. It says, If we were properly evaluating ourselves, We would not be judged. And the judged here, I think, is is a temporal sort of judgment. Okay, I think I skipped over verse 30, so let's, let's read that quickly. It says there that that is why many of you, many of you Corinthians, are weak and sick, and a number of you have fallen asleep or have died. So we have a temporal judgment that is coming upon the Corinthian church as they're celebrating the Lord's Supper because they haven't repented, they haven't confessed. And so verse 31 is saying, if we were properly evaluating ourselves, if we were properly applying the gospel to our lives, we would not be judged. We would not be judged. So here's why this is good news. I believe some of you really need to hear this today. It is my experience personally and in the lives of many Christians I've known, that at some point in our past, there, are, there is a sin or two that was a biggie, okay? That had massive consequences. I've been there. Anybody else? You, you right now are thinking of some sin in your past that was a big one, and there were massive consequences to that. And we sometimes think, whether that was last week, or whether that was 25 years ago, that sin we sometimes think as we move forward in life when this terrible thing has now happened to me that God is judging me for what happened back there. That is what He has done with the Corinthians. But why has He done that? He's done that because they did not apply the Gospel to their lives. They didn't evaluate themselves. So the good news in verse 31 is that that sin from last week or from 25 years ago, that we may be thinking, oh my gosh, is that why this happened? No! That is not why this happened. Our sins are as far as the east is from the west. Nothing can separate us from the love of God. And temporal judgment and discipline comes when we have not repented. Is that good news? So we are free. We do this every week at the beginning of our service. The confession. We are free and forgiven from whatever we've done, wherever we've been. We've seen six pretty serious problems now with individuals and with people collectively in the Corinthian church. And these things are forgiven by the grace of God as he works to change us and conform us more and more into his image for the glory of God. This is what he's doing. Let's bow our heads and pray together. Father in heaven, Lord, we, uh, my heart's heavy about the divisions amongst Christendom in our world, and it has been divisive for centuries and centuries and centuries, and even for over a thousand years, and yet, Lord, we know that there is no unity apart from truth, and so this is why, this is why we preach a message like we have today. So we have learned that the Spirit intercedes on us when we don't even know how to pray. And this is one of those situations in my heart right now. And I, I'm praying, Lord, that we're all united in this. And we are praying and, and, and asking you to bring unity in your church worldwide. Around the truth of the scriptures. Around the gospel. Around God the Father, and God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. We ask this. And Lord, as we look at this problem in the ancient church at Corinth, uh, we see ourselves in different ways, but we see ourselves. We are people that are desperate for your grace and for your forgiveness. We can easily exclude people and think ourselves as better than they are, free us from that kind of thinking. Help us to be very quick in applying the gospel and to be free and to be forgiven. Not because we are righteous, but because the righteous one died in our place and rose on the third day. We pray by faith in Jesus' name. Amen.